I didn't think that I had a butt chin until I started dating Keely and then I shaved my face one time. But like, look at this. In this angle, looks like I have a butt chin. But then I tip up and it goes away. It's all about the no, shadow. No, it's still there. You have a butt chin. You have Damn. a butt chin. Well, Claudio Sanchez has a butt chin and he okay. doesn't shave the little dimple part. It's weird. I was going to say, there's a solution to this. I don't know if you know that. No, I don't. No, beard? Yeah. I thought you were like referring to plastic surgery. I was like, oh, no, no. I'm, not, I'm not getting plastic. <laughs> Are you body shaming me about my butt chin? Yep. Sounds like. Oh, really oh man, that should have been the open. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm recording, so we can use that. Gotta see the difference the pop filter makes on the air horn effect. Morning. Welcome to another special episode of Don't Feed the Artists. I'm Hagen. And I'm Dave. I'm Adam. And this is Major Jackson to Podcast Control. <laughs> and I think my co-hosts know which way to go. Are we done? Are uh, we done that was now? It. That's the whole thing. That's right. the end? See That's you guys the next end week. of this? <laughs> good job. We got one, one good bit. <laughs> Holy shit. I really struggled when I was writing that this morning. Um, I was thinking, hmm, what can I say instead of podcast control? And for the eight hours I've been up, that didn't work. So, sorry, guys. It's fine. I thought it was good. No, I didn't. <laughs> I'm indifferent. Well, that this still makes no sense to anyone. Um, well, I guess you can read the fucking title. So, I, <laughs> you have little faith in our listeners. I'm sorry. Um, Adam. Why are we here? What are we diving deep into So today? we're here to talk about David Bowie's trilogy of albums called the Berlin Trilogy, uh, Low, Heroes, and Lodger. All right, everybody, shut up. Adam's talking. Uh, Dave motioned to take a shot just now, so I'm going <laughs> to Okay, that. well, that oh, was for, for Hagen. I thought you were going to dive into the intro. <laughs> no. Yeah, so, what the fuck? That's not fair. <laughs> I, I can't do the intro, Adam. I was just throwing it to you. It's fine. You're, you'll be good. No, so, I mean, uh, Dave wrote some of this, and I think is a good point to mention of, by today's standards, David Bowie's first decade as an artist was a very prolific era. He released almost an album every year, uh, up until this point where he did this trilogy in Berlin. Uh, most of his other <coughs> albums up to this point had been met with critical acclaim. They had multiple iconic personas and everything. Everybody knows those, more or less. If you know who David Bowie is, at least, you know some of those personas. We talked about a couple last week also. Um, but after a decade of doing that, he wanted to develop his musical style and do something else. And this was also right after developing a very strong dependency on cocaine in L.A. Uh, so he kind of escaped to Berlin to get away from that and kind of start over as an artist. Uh, so in 1976, he relocated there to clean up and kind of find who he could be. Uh, there was a lot of virtual anonymity anonymity in Berlin that you could find at that time, um, just because nobody seemed to care that he was there, which is a great way to escape, you know, the spotlight that was L.A. and cocaine. Um, so he moved there. Iggy Pop also moved there, and he actually co-wrote and produced Iggy Pop's debut solo album, uh, which I think we talked about kind of on our deep dive with uh, the Stooges to some degree. Yeah, we at least alluded to it. Yeah, and so he, he produced that album. He actually produced his second album as well, um, but that was kind of the start of this era of Bowie's career in the Berlin trilogy. 
Um, these were mostly a known as a set of collaborations with him, Brian Eno, and Tony Visconti, who's a longtime producer of Bowie's, um, who actually worked on his second album, I believe. Um, and then a, the man who sold the world before this trilogy, and he would go on to work on his final two albums as well, um, the next day in Black Star. And so we'll get right into it in a second. These albums came out in 1977, 1977, and 1979. So it is still kind of that, you know, quick turnaround of an album a year, more or less, that he had before, um, which is kind of amazing if you think about him escaping to Berlin to avoid, you know, the lifestyle that he had developed. Um, and then one fun thing that I hope I don't ruin Hagen's game. I just thought about this, but despite the name, only one of these was recorded in Berlin out of this whole era of albums. <laughs> um, All right. I'll see you guys later. God damn it. <laughs> um, sorry to steal it, but I'm was not going to say what question? it is. Well, we can save that for, for later, but okay. <laughs> that was not one of the questions. No, that I, I, I thought about that and I was like, I think everybody's going to know that. I think that's going to be the easiest. Or fact. yeah. Or it was going to come up because it is really weird that they're, you know, they have this name and then only one of them was recorded there. So yeah. 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 It's more just that era of his, his life being there. Yeah, Adam, I know you may not be finished yet, but I just want to go ahead and whether you're finished or not finished, uh, kudos to you. You're doing great. You uh, have nailed this way better than any of the rest of us at one of these little informative intros. You have, mm-hmm. You're putting that NPR voice to good use. <laughs> just for this episode, and then I go back to the background. Back into the shell. <laughs> yes. You're like um, Roger Deacon from Queen. You don't write many songs, but it the every song you've written is a number one hit. <laughs> Feels good. <laughs> yeah, that, that was everything I had uh, written out to talk about kind of as an intro. I have some notes on you know each of the albums. Um, it's cool this... to say like to notice that he. I watched an interview with him where he was talking about how like he wanted to get out of L.A. because he was losing his fucking mind in the throes of like full on cocaine addiction, like literally losing his mind. And uh, can uh, we definitely mention that losing his mind includes in that thin white Duke persona, uh, saying right. some what what were the comments? Something about Hitler or yeah, something like, like pro fascist. He was yeah, type he, had a, he had a bunch of like uh, Nazi paraphernalia and got really caught up in that. But then he later on was like that was he apologized for it and said this was that was one hundred percent motivated by the cocaine. I literally lost my mind. But in this interview I watched with him, uh, he said, uh, you know, I decided to get out of L.A. because it was really toxic. And I moved to Berlin because I thought, you know, nobody, like Adam said before, there was he had anonymity. But he also didn't realize that at that time, Berlin was the heroin capital of Europe. Right. So he's like, how funny is it that I moved out? And he, both he and Iggy Pop were like, hey, let's, you know, let's help each other out and get clean. That's why David Bowie worked with Iggy Pop at that time. And when asked if they were fully clean, he said, well, for us, we were clean. I couldn't really figure out what that means, but I don't think that they were as crazy as they were, but I'm sure they were still indulging in something. Uh, I feel like that just meant less cocaine. They got got help from a member of Tangerine Dream. Uh, Mm. They like, they, they stayed at his, like the, the guy, his name is Edgar Frost. And they stay at like his parents' house in Schoenberg, I believe is the name of it. I mm-hmm. can't remember the name of the, 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 of the town. Um, and Hagen's putting that last name to good use here. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so they, I, I believe that he also helped with their recovery. But the crazy thing is, is that all of this happened in less than a year. I was like, I was writing my notes down. And I was like, okay. So he discovered he was having an issue. He went, he moved to Berlin, gotten apart, gotten apart with Iggy Pop, and like started this whole recovery process and released. Like, I mean, I, I think Iggy released his album in '76, right? Or was it in '77? Uh, yeah, I think. Well, I know they recorded it in '75. So they okay. probably released it in 76 or something. Yeah, I think it came Maybe out late in 76 because the second one came out later that year also. But it's it's yeah. crazy to just see like how like how much happened in that amount of time that I mean like he they felt he fell in love with so much of like the German music and he met the people and he became just immersed in the culture and the scene as well as recovering from addiction. Yeah. All within like less than a year's time. That's that's pretty crazy. And he was he was saying that at that time he was he was pretty poor. Like they yeah. just didn't have any money. Which I wonder if that means for him he was a multimillionaire. So I wonder if he only had oh my god, I'm poor. I only have a hundred thousand dollars. But like <laughs> he said he was poor, so let's go with that. We'll go with it, yeah. Uh, to go back to uh, when he was when he was in L.A. before he moved, he said that uh, those were, quote, the darkest days of his life. He said he didn't remember recording Station to Station. Mm-hmm. He said that he d- has no recollection of recording that, which is just like, uh, yeah, you have a problem. So it's good yeah, he, he also, recognized He it. also was like, I, I wouldn't recommend that anyone do this, you know, but I also can't say that I uh, am ashamed of, of going through that. Right, like that amount of drug addiction, because he said he he really got to know who he was as a person, and that's also just like how you like. I mean, that's a really healthy thing to say after any sort of traumatic experience. Is like I don't regret that this happened because it it's a it's a growth, you know. Even you know, even if it's like even if it was very very like dangerous and uh, harmful, you know, you you regret maybe the actions, but at the end of the day, he he, he learned from them seemingly. Uh, I mean, I guess he still was doing drugs, but, you know, less drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're kind of rounding our way up to the actual music. But before we get into that, I just want to go ahead and state my relationship with David Bowie. I really don't know much about him, didn't know much about him. And honestly, I didn't start listening to him other than, you know, the few hits that I knew um, until he died. And um, even now... I've really only listened to, I think it's Hunky Dory, and then uh, obviously um, Spiders from Mars, the Ziggy Stardust album, that hands down amazing album. But other than that, I mean, I know the hits, but I haven't listened to much. These albums included, I had not listened to any of these prior to going into this. Adam, I know you're a huge fan, so. Yeah, Adam, you have the you have the Black Star tattoo, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've listened. I've listened to everything. I don't love all of it. Like the disco era, Bowie was not good. Um, like, what do you think of Fame? The song? No, <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> I I don't think it's bad. It's just it it feels weird in the context of everything else. Right. I think Fame is like Queens under pressure. Everything from that era can be forgettable, but you still have Fame and you still have Under Pressure, which are great songs. Yeah. But yeah, disco sucks hard. We'll yeah. never do a disco deep. <laughs> well, and so for for these albums, for me at least, these are, I'll just say the three of the first albums I got when I got a turntable, and we'll just go from there. So oh wow, so you have you spent a, quite a lot of time with these records. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, the first one is is uh, 
is low. And it came out in 1976, or it was recorded in September of 76. As Adam said earlier, it was produced by Tony Visconti. The singles were Sound and Vision, Be My Wife, and Breaking Glass. As as we as we start this album, I wanna I wanna like go over something really quickly that was really uh, interesting is that um, Iggy's album is the unofficial start to the Berlin trilogy, which makes it not a trilogy. Um, so that's the uh, prequel that- to the trilogy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna mention that actually because it it feels like it is a part of it as well if you listen to all of them together. Yeah, I haven't listened to it. Well, and that's the thing is that uh, uh, the, the the quote from David Bowie is uh, poor Iggy in a way became a guinea pig for what I wanted to do with the sound. I didn't have the material at the time and I didn't feel like writing at all. I felt much more like laying back and getting behind someone else's work. So that album was opportune and creative, creative, creatively. <laughs> yeah, I think he toured. They toured that music for a little while before they even got in the studio to do low. And yeah. he wanted, I think uh, Bowie's playing keyboards or something as a backup keyboard player for Iggy Pop. Yeah. Oh, and, and he would talk about how that was like a clean slate because it was yeah. Iggy Pop's first solo album. So there was no expectation for what it had to be. And, right. you know, it should be different from the Stooges. But well, at that, especially at that time, because the, the rest of the members of the Stooges were like, you ain't shit without us. Right. And he was like, I'm going to prove you wrong, motherfuckers. So going into low, I, 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 this makes me very reminiscent of albums that are a just like the perfect length. I, you know, nowadays you get an album that's like an hour and a half, or you get an album that's twenty minutes. Or you, I feel like it's rare to find those in between. But most of these albums are like a crisp forty minutes. This one's thirty-eight minutes, thirty-eight and a half minutes, and really, it makes. I listen to these throughout the week, but then you know, listening today just to refresh myself on my notes, I listen to all three albums back to back and. You know, it didn't feel like it, it. I had to make a lot of effort to do that, so that was really nice. Um, I don't know. I I see what Wikipedia puts as the genre, but other like I guess you can call Bowie pop rock, classic rock. I don't know. What, yeah, what would maybe you all call like the genre ex- experimental pop rock of the seventies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of the seventies. He did so much. He did, he did so much throughout his career to change up the styles and stuff. It's kind of just like, really, you could say, at least the B sides of of two or three of these albums is like very much experimental, like soundscape music. <laughs> well, it starts with a uh, instrumental, and mm-hmm. which I was, you know, starting this and not knowing these albums, I was absolutely shocked and. We'll know this going forward. There's a lot of instrumentals on these albums, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I was pretty shocked because I've always associated like David Bowie as like a Lady Gaga type, where it's like they are the forefront. So like I don't, I didn't expect them to take like the back seat for the instrumentals. I mean, Adam or Dave, do y'all know how much David Bowie has to do in like the writing process for the actual music himself? Like, what it, does he play instruments? Yeah, he's very hands-on. He was he's always been a very hands-on kind of guy. I mean, it, at the same time he's not a dictator in that he tells the musicians what to play, but he's always been there for the writing sessions and he uh is he and Tony Visconti whenever they worked together, they were very big on having demos done before the rest of the band got to the studio. So like some in some ways, you know, especially uh, my 
the most I know about our David Bowie record is Black Star. And I know at least for that album, all the stuff that we hear that you think is really cool was already kind of demoed out by David Bowie. Uh, Adam, do you know to what extent they had demos for these three albums? Or were not, they just collaborating? Not for these, but I know that he basically plays a, a wide array of you know non-conventional instruments on here. Like He's not playing guitar parts or anything necessarily, but any of the weird stuff like saxophone, harmonica, there's he's playing xylophone on one of these like all of that weird stuff and obviously of these albums specifically their instrumental stuff is all more of an influence from brian eno and um and that really shows through on the b side of the albums yeah and for people who might not know brian eno is a very like uh eclectic experimental artist who's been doing it for a long time yeah and at this point he's mostly known as an ambient like music Mm-hmm. Yeah, creator. if you don't know who Brian Eno is, I guarantee you you've listened to maybe not his specific music, but music he's had his hand in, on yeah. or in, like whatever, like the Microsoft '95 startup sound. There you go. Was yeah. that Brian Eno? That was Brian Eno, and he made it. He made it on a Mac. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, let's let's kind of dive into the music a little bit. As for me. I will just go ahead and say the first time I listened to this, it felt kind of unassuming outside of, you know, like sound and vision. I was just kind of like, ah, you know, nothing to, you know, jump out. It wasn't bad or anything. And then today when I was re-listening to it, I accidentally put it on shuffle. I'm sorry, I'm not listening to it on vinyl, you guys, but I accidentally put it on shuffle and I found that I liked the random order a little better. I felt like the sequencing for this kind of threw me for a loop. And when I had these random songs coming at me, I was like, oh, you know, this is a little bit more impactful. So for me, I felt like the songs are there, but the sequencing felt weird to me. Right. And you mentioned that you didn't have the record. They David Bowie purposely wanted to have side A be, you know, songs and accessible things and side B uh, to be very uh, kind of maybe not unaccessible, but the the harder to listen to stuff on side B so that you had the option so much so that when the when the record label when RCA heard it, they wanted to bury this record uh, to the yeah, point they, that they, they rejected they purposely. It they rejected it. Yeah. They delayed it until January of 1977, which is like a bad time to release a record. They did that on purpose. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think I read somewhere that the B side was like called like the Brian Eno side, basically. Right. Like that's and that, the, he wrote that side first before yeah. the A side. Yeah, I, I think I'm sure the shuffle thing really like did help because I agree. Like when, whenever I listened to this album, I I was I I got really um, I didn't get like bored necessarily, but I kind of found myself like kind of dazing off at moments and then like whenever like the split happened i was like what the fuck is happening and i was right. back into it but then i found myself kind of like dazing off again especially because it's like some weird you know like ambient kind of stuff that is it's not necessarily designed for someone to be like very keen on the listening you know you're not supposed to with some of that stuff not necessarily not supposed to but it's harder to be like i'm intently listening on ambient music of course yeah, yeah. i i found i felt exactly the same way um, I was expecting it too because I had already watched some footage about the making of these records. So I was like, okay, here we go. This is going to be the soundscape stuff. Yeah. So I decided to listen to these records while going on a drive. Just like I felt like it'd be good driving music. And it kind of was. I did. I was distracted a little bit. And tell me if you guys thought the same way. I was kind of distracted a little bit on the mixing of this album and how 
present the bass is. As a bass player, I'm normally like, can I get more bass? But on this, on I think most of these recordings, I was like, damn, that bass is really present. I I thought it was I thought it was like the most grounding thing we could we could have, right? I mean, take take any of the any of the experimental stuff any of like the more accessible stuff and the bass being there really kind of like it it brought me back into the song if i was ever kind of leaving it because the bass playing was so good and the parts were really really great and so it just consistently just pulled me back into it um i do agree that it was really loud but i think it was loud for a really good reason that's a good point i can see that i i I think so if we're I don't know necessarily that we're going track by track, but Speed of Life being the first song, uh, it's an instrumental. I think it would have been better if there were vocals on it. Yeah, I I, th- I, I agree with that, but I feel like uh, if you look at it solely as just like almost like an intro to a story, it works really well kind of leading into the album. I think it would be better with vocals. I thought the same thing. Would like So uh, I, I, I listen to these albums during workouts and uh no don't do that um not suggested <laughs> um but uh th- this was this this started and i was like oh they're it felt like they were setting a vibe instead of like here is the first song you know yeah i guess if you look at it like that as an opening to the to the what would become the berlin trilogy that could be an, uh, a good precursor to it yeah it, it sort of plays as an intro in that regard but it is i mean it is weird if you hear this for the first time and you don't know it's going to be an instrumental song it's very yeah. strange. It is, and especially like going into Breaking Glass, when I was like, "Well, th- like this, this feels like much more like I, what what I was expecting to start the album with." I guess, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the vague, the vague hint of reggae. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did find that uh, on my second uh, listen, that you know, the first time I was just really kind of letting, not thinking too much about the lyrical content or anything too intently just kind of letting it wash over me and like get the general fear feeling of uh, the songs um I, nothing grabbed me too much other than sound and vision um but then on my second listen i did notice oh when i was listening to the lyrics even if i wasn't too grabbed uh by the melody of a song or any type of hook i did find that the lyrics were really you know impactful i really be my wife is a prime example i think the lyrics on that were fantastic kind of just talking about like hey i've lived all around the world it really kind of feels uh, autobiographical in the sense that it, there's this lyric where he says oh, i've been a- around the world i've lived everywhere and you know no matter what you get lonely and you know be my wife that kind of thing i was like oh that's a you know a good sentiment and i, I think that it comes through on a lot of these songs it's a, it, it's a good it's a good sentiment, but it's also like, listen, I've tried everything else, and I just I've arrived at this. Just be my wife. I really tried to do everything else <laughs> to not have to ask you to be my wife, and it all isn't last good resort. Enough. Last well, resort this, would you be my wife? And this and this was like this this the recording started as he uh, was like starting like to have issues with his marriage. So. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, he that got makes, divorced, right? Yeah, uh, I, I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. he did. Yeah, so it's like he was totally fucked up throughout. Yeah. like this process is just like the, the the amount. I know maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but the amount of of output that he had during this time. Yeah, it's crazy. With, combined with what was going on in his life, is just like man. well, 
and the and the the quote that I like of, about this is there's oodles of pain in the low album. I like yeah. that. Uh, but again, yeah. like the output is crazy, and he even took a step back to do Iggy's album. That was a step back in his mind, and then he still puts out all of this other shit. It's crazy. And that was like he had a hand in Lust for Life, right? Uh, yeah. I think so. <laughs> less less like, of a of impact is on the first one, but. Yeah. So uh, back to back in the songs, uh, I I think that uh, the one that that shocked me the most and the fact that I liked it and I'm, I'm I think it's pronounced Warzawa. Is that how you say it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I love I, I really like that song too, and I was shocked as well. That one, that one, like I I caught myself uh, again. Like I'm I'm working out. I like I'm like this is such a weird vibe right now. And that song starts, and I'm like okay. I like this more. It keeps going, keeps going. And I kept like looking at the, the, the title of the song. Cause it felt like it like just changing throughout. Uh, but it was the same song. I was really digging that one. That one was really cool. That's, that's the, uh, to be honest, like the only one on the B side that I'm really into. I feel like the uh, second half was probably my favorite half just because I, here's my one note on that uh, second half is the end of the album becomes very cinematic as in sounding like a uh, score yeah uh, of the time period kind of sounds like it'd be like in you know a stanley kubrick movie and yeah i wrote this before i looked up any production credits i just put in parentheses very brian eno mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well and the influence of uh tangerine dream comes through on the second half too and they were doing film scores at the time or were about to start doing them which is kind of an interesting thing uh real, real quick with that track that you like taken that actually is the first song on his uh, live album at the same time stage, and the live version of that song is even better. Interesting. All um, right. And I think cool. it's it's weird that it jumped from being like, oh, it's you know the instrumental on the B side, and then now it's the opening track of the show. Yeah, I think some of yeah. this instrumental music he was writing to uh, submit to a a movie to score a movie. Almost everything on the second half was actually like discarded stuff from the uh, the man who fell to earth uh right. soundtrack that he was working on and then got rejected eventually also did you notice adam that uh the harmonica on new career in a new town is the exact same as the harmonica line on i can't give everything away from black star no but that makes sense because there's a there's a lot of recurring things that come back in black star yeah it's so cool i was, I was like hold on a second i know this but yeah i don't know largely i i preferred the first half because as we'll find out through yeah. the rest of this episode I can't fucking stand experimental music. I think it's just like it, it depend. It, it has something for each person, but I think where it kind of fails for me is that it doesn't blend together well. Whereas, like when we were talking about Sufjan Stevens, he had his kind of noise parts or his whittly diddlies and these like instrumental swells, but they blended well into the album or into the song itself. Whereas this, it just it's kind of like, well, this side's for you and this side's for you. It's not for you both. That That's how I felt. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. All in all, it felt like a pretty low-key album to me, and um, not bad, just kind of low-key. Yeah, I think another thing to think about is what the context of music was at this point in time, and that, you know, even, you know, we're judging it on today's standards or our standards of music, which is a relevant thing to today. Uh, it, it was pretty different than what was going on at that time. I know he was influenced yeah. by, like, craft work and... Uh, a couple of other bands in that area but in the well for a pop musician right yeah it was very experimental Kraftwerk has become so like a seminal um 
touch point for the electronic genre, but you know, they probably weren't massive like Bowie ever. Whereas, you know, Bowie to release something like this, that's kind of so out of left field or experimental to challenge, you know, the general population who is probably listening to Bowie. That's a, you know, it's a gutsy move. It's risky. Oh yeah. When they toured this music, they would get booed a lot. And they would, I remember Tony Visconti talking about like, or I don't know if it was him, but somebody talking about him editing the booze out of the the live performances. <laughs> oh my and God. he ended up saying like, well, no, I didn't. I mean, we just didn't pick them up. We wouldn't have purposely left them out. If that was the thing that happened, he's like, David Bowie would have been like, leave it in. Like, this is a reaction right. to the music. We want to keep it in. Well, speaking speaking of like of, of the reactions, uh, it's interesting that, that David Bowie fell in love with, with Berlin, called this the Berlin Trilogy, and all of them... All the albums did not do too hot in Germany in sales. Uh, Low peaked at 84. That's the highest that it got. And his other albums did really well in, in uh, in the charts, like his older albums and then albums after that. But this album and the other ones did not do too great, this one peaking at 84 on the charts. See? What a fucking loser only getting up to 84. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> but what do well, we expect? The guy is like coming off of a legendary cocaine addiction, getting divorced and writing an album. It's like, yeah, it's very true. It's just, it's very interesting to see that somebody who you might expect to be a top 40 artist isn't even close, you know, like obviously we can all sit here and be like, ha 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 84. Like that's so whatever. He's still making a bunch of money still, but like altogether 84 is like, that's not very good. Dude, that's yeah, not fun. Really coming off of that decade of, you know, every album was a hit before this more or less. Yeah, so. exactly. Right. Yeah. I was going to say if one of our Monica records got to like 84 on the billboard charts, I would put that on my fucking resume. <laughs> oh yeah and then also think about like an 84 in 1977 is probably like a double platinum record today <laughs> right yeah exactly um so, go on yeah go on. Let, i was gonna say are we ready to go into a game or yeah we here we go something? all right yeah i'm ready for the game if you guys are so i was gonna ask yeah let's do it all right so the game uh is called uh you could be heroes just if you get these questions right uh, so all the questions are partic- are about the song Heroes. Um, so uh, David Bowie and the whole band, everybody who is a part of the song, they added a lot of uh, interesting effects using different uh, interesting instruments of the time uh, on the song. Which of these options did David Bowie play himself on the recording? It could be more than one. So A... The Eventide 910 Harmonizer. B, the Solina String Synthesizer. Or C, a Chamberlain. Is this which uh, did he not play? No, which did he play? I'm just uh, going to say C. Oh, yeah, I'll go B and C. I'll say all of the above. Okay, uh, so the correct answers are uh, B, the Solina String Synthesizer. Um, and C, the Chamberlain. So uh, the Eventide, which is A, uh, that the the har- it was a harmonizer. It was like an early version of a harmonizer, and it was used on low. Like all of the weird sounds you hear on low are from this. Um, I found that it was it was used on anything from like a snare drum all the way to vocals. It was used across the board to just make some crazy ass sounds. Um, the Selena string string synthesizer 
was used for like basically like cheesy string sound, <laughs> but it sounds <laughs> yeah. great. The Chamberlain is like a more advanced Mellotron, uh, and they used it for a brass effect in Heroes, and it sounds not like brass. <laughs> no, not at all. Dude, but I watched a, a breakdown of, the, of, like, Tony Visconti went through all the tracks of, like, how he how he mixed everything and showed what was what the recording was. Uh, wh- what was the guy's name who just passed away? It was one of the original members of Fleetwood Mac. Oh. Uh, anyway, I think he was, I think he played the the main guitar part they he had retired or something peter green i think well i know i, I know robert fripp was all over oh sorry the, all, yeah robert fripp oh robert fripp was all over this yeah he played all the guitar parts on it and they at the point that he did all that stuff they didn't even have the lyrics for the song yeah so the so david played david bowie played those two things robert fripp did some crazy effect stuff and brian eno fucked with the effects so robert fripp had this like dialed in really cool sound and then, uh, and then Brian Eno just made it even weirder and, and cooler. And they're doing all this to tape, right? Yeah, it's all it's <laughs> it's all it's all to tape, uh, and uh, they it it is all to a click, which I which was interesting. Um, so so uh, Dave, you got all of it right, and Adam, you get one point, and Jackson gets one point. We Dave did it. Gets two points. You did it. You did it. I'm so right. proud of you guys. Adam, do you want to take us into the next album? Yeah, we kind of already started to talk about it in terms of um, Robert Fripp, who's from King Crimson, joined to work on this album. He had already worked with Brian Eno before. Um, and this album came out later in the same year, so 1977. October. Yeah. And I, I don't remember if they recorded it in 1977 or late 1976. Since I know the album was, or since Woe was delayed, um, but after the album, after this album came out, he spent most of the next year touring, which is why Wadger would take an extra two years to come out. Um, this was kind of like to celebrate him breaking his addiction to cocaine, or at least doing less cocaine. Um, <laughs> the uh, the cover of this album ties into the Idiot, which they have the same allusion to a painting uh, that they also reused this album cover on the next day which was bowie's second to last album and the first one after like a decade of no output um so i know everybody talks about so you start is like the iconic you know album that everybody knows from for david bowie but heroes is like right up there to me at least especially some of these songs yeah obviously heroes but i agree with you after listening to this i mean that's a classic album cover and then yeah. Yeah. immediately compared to the other album that came out this same year, um, like this album just feels just more aggressive and larger, and it hones in on a lot of things I think they tried in low. Yeah, I think it, it is clear why it's in the middle of both of these other two albums, and it's like the, the best of both worlds in that regard. Like they kind of got what they were going for in low, and then, you know, were built upon it a little bit and then got here and this is a better version of what they were trying to do yeah it's so it's a very similar uh pacing where the a side is more accessible stuff and the b side is experimental stuff although the b side is very very brian you know compared to last time (laughs) it's very true oh yeah so just to just go to the to the accessible and just go to the song heroes which i already started talking about obviously i mean that that song is just it's so fucking incredible that song will be stuck in my head for days and days right? and fucking days. Can I can I read my uh, what I wrote about that song? I got really long winded on my notes. 
it says heroes i fucking love this song it's one of his best in my opinion like of all time it makes me feel this really nostalgic slash yearning feeling that i like really relish not like that nostalgic of like uh things were better but just that kind of like ah i had a good time and uh you know i just like it, it like i genuinely the first time i was listening to it like i felt like i was on this like verge of tears because i was just like ah you know this is just like it feels good listening to it and uh, as soon as like the song was over i just felt good i i, yeah. I don't know yeah. why it feels good it's, it's also incredible. it's the shortest six minute long song you've ever heard and and how yeah. many sections are there there's like an is, is it just an a b section is that i mean yeah there's like I think nothing that's it. there's nothing and to the song the other thing too, I was mentioning the t- Tony Visconti talking about it, like the mixing session for it. If when he, when he was playing each individual track, it's not that clean. And no. when when Bowie goes up in his higher register and and starts singing the the verse, he it doesn't sound. I, I hate to say this, but it doesn't sound super polished. Well, and that that fits though, because most of this album they just kind of improvised and came up with. You know, while they were there, and then in contrast to Low, where they had you know demos, of everything in advance because right, they were yeah. you know for the uh, the film. This is all largely just kind of made up after they've worked together for a while, and it it shows, but it also makes it. I I think it is better for it. And they and from from what Tony Visconti said, it was like they recorded every single. Uh, like every song had like this this like bass line, not like an actual bass, but like they started with like you know the 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 five members who were playing just like the song, and they would get in the room and they would track that, and then they would just go from there. And that's how most of the songs seem to have gone on this album, where it was just like they were like more or less jamming and writing this out as they went, and it would it wouldn't take them long. They would go, okay, cool, this is it, this is uh you know this is heroes. This is the A section. This is the B section. And now let's just go nuts. You know, that was it from then on. Yeah, I so I really don't think there's a bad song on this album. The opening track is great. I think if you listen to that opening track, you know what the rest of this album is going to sound like. Adam mentioned that Brian Eno section. I think that what they did on the first record, they really nailed it here. I was just like, I was so into mm-hmm. this, like, they just and they go straight into each other. I know that they're each individual songs, but they really go. They kind of segue right into the next one, where you could really just sit down and be like, "This is like a twenty-minute thing." Not um, a shuffle. The album. only thing that the only gripe I have with this album is that the closing track it goes from these four instrumentals into a closing track that's more of like a classic Bowie song called "Secret Life of Arabia." This is a good song, but I think. It should have been put on the A side or at the beginning of the B side because I feel like after listening to those instrumentals, I was just like, an end. That's good. That's like you so, nailed it. And then the, that song comes up and I'm like, damn it. Yeah, there's a varying uh, opinion on that. It's it's very kind of one-sided or the other because some people think that it's along the same lines that you were, that it should have been on the A side. But a lot of people are like, hey, he did this as a a way to hint at what's coming next with Lodger. Or uh, that some people even prophesized, or prophesized, who the fuck am I? Uh, some people even <laughs> thought about the fact that it's like the second half of the album is like a journey through a desert or something. And then all of a sudden he arrives, he gets out of the desert and gets to Arabia. And it's like he made this, you know, trip and then arrived there. And that's why that song was positioned that way. So I would agree with that if, uh, you know, if that was clearly stated in the album. That no, that yeah, no was... one's ever stated that. 
yeah, if it was clearly stated, I'd be all for that and say, okay, the music can take a back step if the, you know the story is going right here. But I'm purely talking in the musical sense. I don't think it is a bad song at all. I just wish we could have ended on the instrumentals because I went from this really bombastic feeling of like, oh man, all these like classic Bowie songs sound great to like, okay, now I'm going to like mellow. It's like, you know, like cocaine, you're, you know, you're just (laughs) running and then, you know, you start to come down and I was just like, ah, kind of feeling this warm feeling of like, ah, that was really good while it lasted. And now I'm just kind of coming down and then it hits me back with one more of those. And I I was just like, man, I really kind of wish it had ended differently. That's because you did more cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now real quick, Dave, did you just say prophesize or prophesize? I don't remember, dude. <laughs> like I said, I, I cross just... state. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well. <laughs> okay, so uh, I found on some of these tracks, one track from the from Low, uh, but on this record, Beauty and the Beast and Blackout. Let me find the other one. Yeah, what in the, what in the world? Those three tracks, Bowie sounds like Josh Homme. Or Josh Homme ends up sounding like Bowie. Yeah, I was about to say, it's not like Bowie. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I can kind of see that, though. But I can, even uh, the song Blackout sounds like it could have been a Queens of the Stone Age song from the, their later, uh, yeah. their last two albums. Yeah, I totally get that. I get that. But the cool thing is that we have the, you know, the connection, the direct line between Bowie, Iggy Pop, post-pop depression, Josh Homme. Yeah. It, no, it, I mean, that album's great. Everybody should check that out. Yeah, that's a great album. Well, I mean, Josh Homme and Queens of the Stone Age is a clear, like, I mean, you just look at how he like how he writes music and how he performs and how he does most things, and you can tell where where he comes from. Um, yeah. Jackson, I have to go back. You said that, uh, you know, there isn't a bad song on this, this album, and uh, I literally wrote the exact same thing down. Um, I wrote that exact same thing. I, I really like, I, I loved this again. Like, uh, this, this album worked a lot better for me in terms of just like what it was. It, it, it kind of felt, um, I don't know. And low, low, just, it, it got, like I said, I went in and out of it. I stopped listening at times. I stopped paying attention and I'm sure I did at some point in heroes, but I mean, I, I, I really just, loved the whole thing i thought it was great and so here's a a thing i want to mention about you know ambient music and stuff like that it you know i I think people think only music is only good if you're actively listening you know if it's like a you know really like a symphonic song and you're really paying attention i would beg to differ that a song that kind of washes over to you and you know kind of makes you feel this kind of feeling is just as valid as something that you really have to think about or you really feel yeah Um, so you know i agree with you hagan that you know there's not a there's probably at moments when i would listen to this record in the future that i'm it may wash over to me but that being said there's that subconscious feeling that i'm like okay i'm comforted by this music because i know it's good that kind of thing and the con the concept of like the concept of you know, like music always being something that like you have to be constantly listening to is something that I feel like is very elitist. And it's something that we instill on ourselves as active music listeners that we should we, we feel like we should always be actively listening. But if you take a look or, or just pay attention to people who love classical music or you or if you listen to classical music, it's not 
composed in a sense so you can just listen front to back you know and be like super involved it it, it is it is performed that way but the way that it's composed is seemingly like you know here's this big moment and now i'm gonna bring you down and bringing you down might include you not listening to this for a second because i'm setting up the next scene you know uh, and and with this sort of stuff, it's not necessarily setting up the next scene, but it is it is this ambient music that can be just background. It can make you feel something without it being active. You know, when you think about like, uh, you know, I was saying earlier as when they toured, when they toured this music, there were the audience was booing and stuff like that. But that's not a new thing. Like in uh, when when Stravinsky released the Rite of Spring, oh, Rite of Spring, there was a fucking riot. Well, yeah, that was that was like, I mean, a, a debut of a classical piece with a bassoon solo. Of course, there's a riot, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it ends up becoming one of the most coveted yeah. pieces in history, and there was a fucking riot. I mean, I was trash can like, players. Am I right? I wish music was still <laughs> like that. Why can't Why can't we riot at a, at any like like if 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 Beyonce did something crazy, there wouldn't be riots. There would be tweets. No. I want riots. Hey, Hagen, before we move into the next album, uh, what's your relationship with uh, David Bowie's music? Um, it's complicated. Okay, <laughs> cool. Right. Uh, before I, no, before I, don't, I, before I, I really I really don't have anything. Um, I, I, I think there's probably some point in my life, you know, um, where my dad may have played some David Bowie around me. Uh, but, I, I, I mean, that, that would... It, it falls under a, a similar category for me for a lot of music from like this like the 60s 70s and 80s where he just played stuff um and there was some music where like he would bring it back whenever i was older like uh he brought king crimson back you know whenever i was older and talking about how i was into prog music and stuff like that but he never brought david bowie back for me to talk about i actually asked my mom about this uh about this trilogy and david bowie and and not a surprise, my mother, who loves the Dixie Chicks and Fleetwood Mac, was like, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. Was, was, <laughs> she, she, I think she said, like, was that Ziggy Stardust? And I was like, no, no, I lo- no. I love the idea of you asking your mom, like, Mom, what do you think about David Bowie's <laughs> Berlin trilogy? <laughs> well, I mean, like, I, I tend to ask her questions about these albums. If, if we do a deep dive uh, about an album that was released or a series of albums that was released, uh, you know, when she was very active listening to music at the time. And so, uh, yeah, I thought maybe she had some kind of insight for me, but no, well, not at all. But I think that kind of speaks to these weren't, you know, the albums that they're regarded as now, they just weren't treated that way at the time. Everybody kind of ignored it. Yeah. and Not and, ignored and, it, but, you know, obviously Low didn't do well on the charts. Heroes, I assumed it better because it was more in the normal kind of Bowie sound. Well, and because of how big Heroes was. Yeah, yeah. It it didn't quite it didn't quite do like too well, but it uh it it, it got to forty four on the German charts. Forty four. There you go. So He's it got better. Man. It got better. Uh, before we move on, I want to say that uh, in th- uh, just a cool little tidbit, Tony Visconti was also talking about how one day when they were recording the song Heroes, he. David Bowie asked everybody in the studio to leave so he could work on doing those those higher registers kind of scream like vocals. And he said that he went out with one of the people that was in the room, like uh, this this lady who was, I can't remember what she was doing in the studio, but anyway, they were walking along the streets outside of the studio and ended up next to a wall. And he said that they ended up just making out. And so the third verse is... Uh, 
you know. He said, he said, he said, we shared a kiss. That's what, that's what Tony Visconti said. He said, we shared a kiss. I like, I, I watched the same video you're talking about. Yeah. And there are moments in that video where I was like, shut the fuck up. Shut, <laughs> just stop fucking talking. But he said that David Bowie saw them. And so the third verse of the song is, I can remember standing by the wall and the gun shot above our heads and we kissed as though nothing could fall. And then in the video, Tony, if you remember it, Tony Visconti is like, and uh, that's how I was immortalized in a David Bowie lyric. Yeah. Okay. So, so that that weirded me out because I was like, "Hey, dude, you produced this album. You're already immortalized in David Bowie's music. Stop." And then also, I love when they walked back in. He tells the story of David Bowie being like, "We saw you." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by the way, before we jump off this album, um, I just wrote down here, and you guys might your minds might uh, get blown by this, but here's a fun fact for you. Although referred to as the Berlin Trilogy, this album, Heroes, was actually the only album primarily recorded in the city. Did you all wow. know that? Wow. Wow. I, I guess I, sh- I, guess where, I shouldn't uh, ask my next question. Recorded? Yeah, um, Jackson, smartass. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's uh, why it's, it's the best it's one. It's worth mentioning, too, that the song V. Schneider is a tribute to Florian Schneider, who is the co-founder of Kraftwerk. Yeah, that is that that that's relevant. Yeah. Um, Do you all want to talk about craftwork again? I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> I think Adam does. Adam, do you want to talk about craftwork? No, I just listened to a bunch of their music in the lead up to this. So. I'm so sorry. So, I'd already heard these albums a bunch, and so I was like, I don't have to listen to them that much. <laughs> you're like, you're like, these fucking amateurs. Well, but I went and listened to some of the stuff that influenced them. You know, the there's an album by the founder of Tangerine Dream that I listened to that Bowie said was his soundtrack to this time of his life and i really don't get how it was um it <laughs> I, I don't dislike ambient music or that kind of stuff but it just it didn't seem impactful at all but maybe it was in 1975 when you were doing cocaine so yeah when you're I trying to some stop of these songs doing too, cocaine. like so when it got to the b-side here were my notes for uh from sense of doubt onward sense of doubt here we go again with the soundscapes moss garden i wrote music to meditate to uh new clone i wrote uh, so annoying. <laughs> I mean, I, it, but I also read about some people, uh, some people's interpretations of what uh, what these songs meant to David Bowie, and they were saying that he was he was writing like Nuclon uh, was about some place in Berlin where he was writing about uh, the tension in the area, and I'm like, write a write some fucking lyrics about that then if you want to express yourself that way. But again, I say as a disclaimer, I just don't like instrumental experimental noise music so right. whatever uh, i i do think like my exposure to brian eno started with you know these albums and this album and the instrumental stuff kind of got me interested in listening to his other work because it's so very like it is it really embraces like this is ambient music now this is instrumental stuff we're not like doing a song that had lyrics and we just took them out and it's uh, it's interesting it's it is weird though that they split the album in half the same way they did in low but it worked so much better here yeah so yeah. much better it's, it's cool to me to hear that from you because i know you still are very much into like listening to scores and you know you can you can you have a much higher tolerance for that stuff than i do that that like to some degree i think listening to brian Eno stuff you know earlier and listening to music and hearing new things kind of helped me to have an interest in listening to film course and stuff because it is in the same not genre but type of music so yeah i i i think that like yeah i agree dave with i like it would be nice if 
uh, the lyrics kind of helped how he was feeling about, you know, tensions and, and just things like that in general with, with this kind of music. But, I mean, he was also, you know, not only was he feeling a certain way about tensions in Berlin or whatever it was, but he was also inspired by the music in Berlin, which was this sort of thing. So it almost like pays more homage to it in that regard. Um, but I do agree that, I mean, I, I, I would rather just lyrics than ambience. But I mean, I think that this album does it so well if an album is going to do it. Yeah, because sometimes I can see people in the studio doing something like this and having a having something that could be a track, you know, like like sound sense of doubt or whatever where you finish the recording of it and somebody like maybe the producer or somebody in the studio can go man that sounds like the tension in berlin right now and so it's like okay cool when we do press for this record i'm gonna say that that's what this is (laughs) (laughs) when really it was just an experimental thing that they recorded i don't like obviously that's not the the way it is and david bowie was has always been very close to his art so i give him more merit than that but i can see some people doing that Right. I think this just gets into that uh, age old, uh, you know, battle between artists and their fans of there are some artists who refuse to tell you what a song is about. Because as soon as you say that, that's what that song is about. And then you have four, you know, fuckheads on a podcast saying, well, I don't get it. (laughs) And I just, you know, I really, I don't see, I listen to my own music and I know what I wrote it about. And then, you know, Five years down the line, I sent y'all an acoustic, uh, you know, rendition of one of the first songs I wrote with this band, our band, and I was like, man, this hits so much differently now, and I can see how it could be about what I'm experiencing right now of just being stuck inside all the time. So Right, so the context has changed. Yeah, even as the person who wrote it. Yeah, and again, you know, we were talking before about, like, being active music listeners and the fans not being super excited about the B-sides of both of these albums. I think it goes without saying that like uh, your best audience as a, you know, as a gauge for how good your music is are the people who aren't educated in music. Yeah. So I think, you know, the fact that they, he didn't really do well on these albums is a testament to what his fan, his fans being like, Hey man, we're with you until you do weird shit like this. And then we don't really dig it. <laughs> so we're not going to buy your albums or we're going to buy them and be like, this sucks. Well, they're going to buy them because they have to buy them because that was the only option. Right, exactly. Uh, and, then, and then they're going to get what a time <laughs> they're going to, they, they, they heard this, they heard a single or they, you know, they saw, they liked David Bowie and they bought the album or they bought whatever. And now they're disappointed with it. But you know, I, I, I also think that uh, it, it's, it's hard. Um, I, I think back then being an, being an active music listener was much more, common than it is now 100 um, and i think that people who like dig the ambient stuff now because i think there are more people who dig ambient stuff now than back then at least more across the world uh i i think that that that, that helps these albums live uh, much more you know in time you know heroes obviously will stay because of heroes the song but like the B-sides, I think those will, will those will continue to live forever, not just because it's David Bowie, but because the concept of ambient music has gotten bigger. And we could say that David Bowie releasing these albums is a part of that. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so here's, here's a big thing about, you know, ambient music. And I think you touched upon it, Hagen, is that whenever, you know, they were putting a record down and, you know, you can turn up a record loud and listen to it throughout your house, but... I was able to listen to these albums walking around the street in Dallas, you know, listening to ambient music. Right, like I was driving around listening to these two. 
Right. Exactly. While passively going through your day is a whole different experience than sitting down in your living room and really kind of, quote unquote, being held hostage by the experience. Yeah. 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 It's it's definitely it, it was it was a very different time for music listening. So I think especially like imagining like putting on like a pop record, right? Like Billie Eilish's next album is gonna be all ambient music, and we have to listen to it on vinyl. I put on the first side, I'm like, yeah, these are Billie Eilish tunes, and I flip it over, and I'm like, what the fuck am I? What? Like why? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. why did I why did I fucking buy this vinyl? This is a bummer. Now I just have this giant thing here taking up space. I don't want this. Well, and it also feels like too if 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 someone like Billy Billy Eilish did that now, um, we would be like, okay, she was just filling up space to fulfill a record contract. But when sure. David Bowie did that in the in the late seventies, it was like, what is he trying to tell us? Right. <laughs> well, especially because RCA rejected that first album. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Are we just avoiding talking about the third record? No, no, no. We're just taking a long time to transition. Uh, I, I was going to say real quick before we go on uh, to our next you know, game. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that the timing of this is kind of like the start of modern ambient music, if you will, with Brian Eno and everything. Because his uh, second solo album, Brian Eno's in 1974, was like still kind of experimental, but still kind of glam rocky, like Bowie-esque kind of music. And so it was only like a couple years later that he was, you know, getting into this. And then now that's all he's known for is ambient music. Yeah. And instrumental stuff at the very did least. Did collaborating so. with Bowie help him get pushed into the limelight to do really... Do you think maybe he did what he really wanted to do after that? I think there's probably some degree of he wanted to do stuff like this and couldn't on his own. But this kind of gave him a place to experiment with that because he was basically handed the second half of each of these albums. Well, the second half of two of these albums to do what he wanted to. And here's so. the... Here's here's the like the, the I guess the the mean person in me. Uh, I I hear what Brian Eno did on the song Heroes and other songs, and I'm like, wow, this sounds great. He could just do that. That'd be awesome. Like I would be much happier if that was just what he did instead of making ambient music. Cause I'm not a big fan of it. I like this stuff, but well, so I, I mean, I think his uh, second album that I'll mention the name, I guess, because I didn't before. Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy is really really good. And it's like he has never done anything like that since then. Right. He just does only the ambient stuff, which is kind of a shame because it's you know he's good at doing that other work as right. a producer, as a you know composer and writer. Yeah. Uh, game time. You guys ready? Let's do it. Do you think you can be heroes? Okay. Uh, so Dave, you're probably gonna get. I'm surprised. Did you? Yeah, you got, you got the first one right. So you're probably gonna get all these right because I, I use that video for a lot of this. Uh-huh. Um. So. Uh, okay. So the flanger effect on the bass, was that recorded on the tape or was that added afterwards? Uh, no, I'm going to say gonna afterwards. Answer. Adam? I'm going to say on the tape. Dave? On the tape. Yeah, it was put on the tape, which was very uh, very unconventional at the time. Uh, it was something that uh, <laughs> Jackson's taking a, <laughs> a fake shot. Um <laughs> So uh, it was it was very unconventional for the time. Uh, Tony Visconti and David Bowie were they when they did these. I mentioned earlier they did, they did these like bass tracks. They did these like hey this is like what the song's gonna be where all five members or whoever was like the main members of the song playing. Um, they all got together in the room and recorded it. So they wanted to set the vibe. They were trying to create the vibe on the tape before they added other stuff. So uh, the, ba- the the bass having flanger they wanted to keep that as it was. The full, um, 
the full vibe of the song. And to go back to what you're saying earlier, Dave, about the bass being loud, I think that continued on the rest of these albums. And I think it was, I, I, I think especially on Heroes, it shined, it shined so much. Yeah. And I forget the bass player's name, and I'm a bad man for not writing it down. Um, no, I didn't write it down either. I, I was, I was just going to comment on how we haven't been mentioning the side musicians that run any of these records. I mean, we, Robert Fripp was the, is the, is like uh, obviously a big one with Brian Eno and Tony Visconti. I'm trying to find the, the bass player's it's name. George Murray. George Murray, yeah, uh, incredible, incredible playing. Uh, obviously, the drummer was good too, but nothing that like stuck out to me too much. Um, it know, was just really yeah, solid playing, I, I, except for, um, well, we'll get there. This is a song on, on Ledger where the drums are just fucking killing. But I think, too, that's a testament to recording to tape and, and that time period where they were doing records where when they made a decision, that, that was it. So putting right. Flander on the bass into tape was like, we want this on tape. We can't just go into Pro Tools and, and fix it, you know, and, and deliberate over whether or not we want that effect on the bass. They made that decision, and it was there for the rest of time. Yeah. It's uh, it's it, it's pretty wild to 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 think about that, right? I mean, like, imagine imagine like you recording, you got you get called for a session, and and the the producer, the band leader is like, I'm thinking that you put a flanger on your bass, and you're like, can you just do that later? Like, yeah, what? dude, I, yeah, I've been in <laughs> sessions where it's like I've had the uh, I've had the producer go, all right, so we we got to re-record that that one measure in the middle of the song. Whereas in, in you know in the late seventies it would have been like cool man we're never calling you again. <laughs> <laughs> we're 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 never calling you again or like yeah we're gonna hire somebody else you can go ahead and leave now we're gonna try yeah to, we're gonna cut this yeah. again. Can I still get paid though please? Yeah, no, yeah Ringo cannot. will you uh, please step out of the session and yeah we're, uh, we're gonna go get a coffee or something. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna sneak Bernard Purdy in to record your Beatles tracks. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's funny. Uh, just as a weird side fact, talking about getting paid back then and getting paid now, um, the pay for a club musician, if you were playing a club gig in that time in the seventies, was a hundred bucks. The pay now, when you're playing a club gig in 2020, is still a hundred dollars. Well, false. The pay now in 2020 is less than hundred bucks because they're thinking, right. oh, well, we're doing you a favor by letting you play, friend. Yeah, Can we pay here's you some 50 crumbs. Bucks? You want some yeah. bread? No. Here's some crumbs, bitch. Yeah. Take that was- mask off. You look ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> what, Dave? Real quick, you, you said you said that was Bernard Purdy who played on the Beatles track. Was that was it? Was it Purdy? They called Bernard Purdy in, yeah, to do some of the like. They were like Ringo. Uh, it was it was a, it was a story that um, uh, shit uh, Quincy Jones told. Right? It, mm-hmm. He said he said that like. <laughs> that Ringo is a shit drummer and he, and he sends him off. Like, why don't you go get a tea or something, buddy? Uh, totally just making fun of the fact that he's British. And then, and then I, I didn't realize it was Purdy. Cause in the interview, he just said, we called in a jazz drummer who was in the, who was in the studio at the same time. I, I'm pretty sure it was Bernard Purdy. I hope, I hope I'm not wrong on this because I think that's hilarious. Cause you know that, that story of Bernard Purdy, whenever he would get hired for a session, he would ask for two extra music stands. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he could put in front of his drum set that would say, you just hired a hit maker. Yeah. <laughs> Man, well, and, and so if you, and nobody knows about this interview, I'm sure we've talked about it before, but there are two great music interviews of all time. One is this Quincy Jones interview where like, I guess he was just like, I'm old as shit. I'm going to die sometime. I don't give a fuck what I say. And then there's the second one that uh, not many people know about, but it's Julian Casablanca's from The Strokes, where the interviewer just hands 
back to him what Julian is giving him, and I don't think Julian has ever had somebody like truly question the stupid oh. shit he says. It's is so there audio of it? No, it is all uh, written, and it's a very that. long interview, and it's fucking hilarious. The the thing with the the Quincy Jones one that's great is that yeah, he's like totally unhinged until he asks him about the JFK assassination, and he's like, I can't talk about that. And it's right. it's great. It's so great. <laughs> should we should we now go on? Okay, to yeah, Lodger? Let's, what what a detour. Well, we're just finding ways to not talk about this one. So, <laughs> yep. Thank you. Well, the last one is Lodger. Came out in May of nineteen, or they? I can't, I can't remember if I wrote the dates for them recording it or coming out. In it May came out in seventy nine. Yeah, it came out in nineteen seventy nine. So after touring the last two albums for two years, um, as a way to support this album, which is a little bit more unusual. He started to refer to this as part of a trilogy. I think that's the first time he actually called it a Berlin trilogy. So it is kind of a marketing thing in hindsight that they did to, I don't know, prop up this up, prop up this album a little bit. Which RCA also didn't like this album, and they didn't agree with what they wanted to have as the the single on the album. Um, and after working with Robert Fripp, who we kind of mentioned off and on on Heroes, he worked with another member who would join King Crimson, uh, Adrian Ballou as a multi-instrumentalist on this album too so and he became a long time collaborator with bowie in his live show yeah uh the apparently david bowie wanted the first side to be about the eastern world and the second side to be about the western world um so is this uh cultural appropriation in music um that's a good question i I kind of felt that way and i'm really bad about that being a white guy I'm really bad at knowing what, you know, when it comes musically is cultural appropriation. And I kind of got a little like my antennas went up during this first part. Even if it's not, it's it, it was definitely like profiting off of that influence without right. really earning it. So that was a, that's what I was going to say is like it, even I, I'd, I'd have to do more research on it. Um, but as far as I can see, I mean, it's not like he's highlighting, you know, specific players from specific, you know, cultures um it's more like he's just using those cultures and he does you know say he's using those cultures but i mean he's using it i mean it's it's not he it, w- it would be one thing if he collaborated you know that makes a really big difference in like, cultural like, appropriation um, graceland yeah it makes Paul Simon. It, it makes a really big difference if you can actually like bring someone in from from the culture in which you're trying to uh emulate but uh, as far as i know that didn't happen um, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say probably cultural appropriation, but also like, I think at, he's, he's just traveling around to these different places and writing about his experiences. So, uh, he's expressing himself as an artist. I think we're getting into a bit of a gray area and calling this appropriation. I think, I, I think that the, the, the trouble is that this is how music, um, changes and advances in a lot of cases. Uh, yeah. going back very, very far, you see a lot of composers who traveled and then came back and they were like, I'm going to write based on this music. And you get that, like you said, that gray area of like, is this cultural appropriation or is this somebody learning a new thing? And I do think that it is, it is fair to say they're learning a new thing. Um, and that they're, they're, they're using that as influence on themselves. Uh, uh, but especially nowadays we know more about you know how to i mean these these you know how much money did david bowie make on you know these albums probably less than other albums especially on lodger didn't make probably didn't make that much money on lodger uh but i, I still made more money than the people that he is you know influenced by 
Yeah, I can understand that. I just don't know if we can flag it like that. I, I mean, I hate to say it was a different time, but it was. I posited more as a just kind of a, you know, something to think about, not necessarily a call right. out to say fuck David Bowie. It's no, more no, of course, I, yeah. It, it my it, my ears perked up and I just kind of like I mean, there's a the fourth track on the album is called Yassassin, which is a Turkish word, which you know, already to me when you have you're speaking in another language that is not one that you speak or blah blah blah, uh, that kind of gets into that murky water for me. But I'm not. You know, as I said, I'm not. But even even in the track fingers. title, even in the track title, he wrote it's Yassassin, Turkish for long live. Yeah, yep. I mean, giving credit where giving credit is very important. So I mean, I again, I don't know if we can fully say uh, that it's cultural. Yeah, for me, it seems like he's just expressing his opinions on, or, or like expressing his views on his travels. Yeah, and I, I would like to think that David Bowie, you know, if, if he was writing this album now, would have more insight and. And include musicians and include people who can actually help with the culture and 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 I mean you know pay them you know make well, and them maybe a part of maybe it. he wanted to because at the time as I mentioned earlier he didn't really he said he didn't have uh, a lot of money so maybe he wanted to yeah we'll, I don't know I haven't read any biographies about this time because I know there are a couple of books about the Berlin trilogy it's uh it's it's because it's because Dave can't read he just watched watches documentaries he can't I read just, yeah. I like pictures and visuals. I don't like words <laughs> on paper. Well, uh, I'm sorry to get off on that. Uh, l- let's no, no, talk no, about it's, no, it's, it's totally valid. It's relevant on this album, especially because the influences outside of the couple bands that he noted as influences here. It's it's definitely like a world music influence that's very heavy and prominent on this album on both yeah. sides of the album. There's a lot of there's a lot of non-Western uh, scales m- music that is implemented in this in these songs. Um, that definitely, I mean, it implies something else. So it, it's, right. it, I think it's really important, especially for four white guys to talk about it, especially for four white guys to like at least make a note of like, hey, this this is a little bit messy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit unhinged. So getting into the music, I liked the first track and I was like, hey, we're bound for another good album. The only thing I didn't like with the first track was was his vibrato. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It was like really aggressive. Yeah. But, you know, and then I kept going and I was like, all right, this is, these are songs. And then I didn't get another uh, song that I liked until the B side, uh, which was Look Back in Anger. And yeah, I I think this album was kind of a miss for me. Whereas, like, as I said earlier, Low was kind of, you know, low key for me, but not necessarily bad. This album, like, there is not a single song on here that I, like, I can remember at all or sing to you. Dude, I have a couple of things. Well, I can't sing this one, but African Night Flight, uh, he's literally rapping on this. And he's got some pretty sick bars, if I do say so myself. <laughs> but I would love to I know heard... where rap music was at this uh, time in 1979. Like, what? where were we uh, in the genre of rap music and i wonder well, if he was at all influenced by that i know that he had i don't know if it was just in his later life but he had an affinity for new york and at this time rap would have been just starting to come up in new york around that time you know with uh rick rubin and ll cool j and maybe the beastie boys well i don't they know recorded part of this album in new york so that could well see that makes fit. sense to me wait, because... wait wait are you telling me are you telling me the berlin trilogy was not 
all recorded in Berlin? <laughs> See, that's actually a common misconception. Only one album was recorded there, oh, and it was Oh, my Heroes. God. I really... Oh, my God. I, I feel well, technically like... Technically, it's not Berlin. It was West Berlin. So I've been lied to. I've been big old lied to. Anyway, I, I did find... <laughs> uh, as soon as I listened to this song, it immediately made me think of uh, Spit It Out, Slipknot Spit It Out. Wait, which song was it? Sorry, I missed that. Uh, which song? African Night Flight when oh, he's okay. rapping. Yeah, 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 the yeah. way that he's rapping and the drums behind it, I put on Spit It Out and I was like, damn, how far we've come. Which one would you rather listen to? Spit It Out. <laughs> yeah, that's a stupid question, Hagen. What the fuck? No, it's not. No, it's not. It's totally No, no, he fair. wanted to know. Spit it, it, out was like, every it was day. like, when he asked that question, the record stopped and everyone looked at me. That's that's That was the scenario I pictured. It's like, oh, God, what do I answer? Because I love David Bowie more than I love Slipknot. Uh, but, you know, I'm not a maggot like Hagen, but... Uh, <laughs> I just <laughs> African Night Flight was very interesting for me. I don't think it was bad, but it, I don't also think it was for me. So, uh, Jackson, a quick thing for you. So, two of the songs on Lodger have the same chord progression: "Fantastic Voyage" and "Boys Keep Swinging." And the reason I'm telling you this is because a song by Blur called "M O R." has the exact same chord progression as well. Not only like the chord progression, but like a lot of like the same kind of sounds. Uh, which I found very interesting, and that also I think I think Brian Eno uh, produced Blur stuff, so that might have been why. Yeah, I, I don't know if he did or not, but hey, just a second. He hey, Adam, uh, yeah. did you know that the same uh, chord progression progression and uh, M O A R was used in a David Bowie song? Did you know that this? Yeah, I had no idea. Thanks for telling me. You know what? I think it's awesome that we're talking about people using the same chord progression when modern pop music is like trends of chord progressions it's uh Man, it's... i literally was yelling to my girlfriend today about how uh much i dislike the marvin gay estate and how i was like oh yeah well this because uh, we were playing like classic songs like frank sinatra-esque music and i kept singing modern songs that use the same chord progression i was singing like an ajj song all these random songs. I was like, this just goes to show you there's not too many variations and fuck the Marvin Gaye estate. Not Marvin yeah, Gaye. Really his estate. In. Yeah. 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 That's that. It's definitely. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, th- the thing with the chord progression is, uh, is that, yeah, I think that all music is based on a lot of the same chord progressions, but that's a very like deep, different conversation. It's interesting that on this album, there are two songs that like have the, have the same chord progression and then blur also, does uh, a similar thing, which I I I'm, I swear I read something about Brian Eno producing it. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, like no, it, not at all. It, no, even if they noticed it or if it was done intentionally, one is on the A side and one is on the B side. So right, honestly, I I don't think that's a bad idea. There have been times that I've written like a guitar part and I was like, oh, but I could do it this way, and have thought, oh, maybe I should just write two songs with the same guitar part. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think yeah. That, that's a bad thing at all. No, I mean, if if that was a bad thing, then we would we would all be royally screwed. I'm not saying it as a bad thing. I'm 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 just more like it's you know we're here to talk about this album. You are saying it as a bad thing. Uh, just admit it. So yeah, I do have one thing. Fuck I David Bowie. Brian Eno was not a producer on that album. I found it. I know. I'm sorry. But they added uh, Bowie and Brian Eno as as a credited songwriter, so they could avoid legal intervention. Really? Oh. On the Blur song? Yeah. That's Damn. interesting. 
So David Bowie like, was a songwriter on a, on a Blur song, apparently. Pre- so. they, they did that before any legal action was taken? Yeah, because they thought something would happen. So. But <laughs> but um, unless unless it's listed uh, because of this, but as far as like like in, in a Brian Eno list of people he's worked with, Damon Albarn is listed. So yeah, I uh, think they probably worked together on other stuff, but not okay. Blur. Maybe I, I actually know the answer to this. Uh, Brian Surprised. Eno uh, worked on Damon Albarn's solo album. He worked oh, on a okay. song called "You Plus Me," which is probably the best song on the album. And I could do a whole deep dive on just that song it's so good it yeah, was but two we're different trying to... songs one was called you and one was <laughs> called me and brian eno was like i only have enough time to spare he wanted him to do the whole album uh but he said i don't i can't do the whole album i can do like one or two songs and then he heard those two songs he said you need to put those together one's called you and one's called me just call the song you and me and it's this like eight minute song that they just kind of melded together it's fucking fantastic brian you know was like i don't have time there's a synthesizer still running at home (laughs) (laughs) you could you could do a deep dive on that but we are we are trying to avoid talking about lodger okay so maybe next time (laughs) it really feels like that doesn't it? i mean (laughs) i I, I will say as a david bowie fan i don't care for this album either that's what i was about to ask i was about to ask can we go around and say just how we feel about this album it it doesn't feel like it fits the trilogy at all which is funny because the trilogy kind of got dreamed up to promote this album I would say that it does fit the trilogy in the worst possible way because it took the elements. Uh, it, it felt like to me, it took elements from the albums that I, from the two albums that I didn't like. I didn't like certain elements from those albums, right? And it just used those. It just used those elements. That's how it felt to me. And it felt like it was kind of like, um, uh, like like a ham-fisted end to the trilogy. It was like, let me just let me just give this to you because I'm supposed to. And it's a like you said, it's marketing. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't like this was an intended thing. It was like, let me take all of these things that I've you know been influenced by and like from German music and German culture and and and, and all of this uh, ambient shit and so on and so forth, and let me shove it into this album, and it's going to be trash. Well, with that too, though, there's not the uh, B side is not all instrumentals. It's actually, I think, no no instrumentals on the whole album, right? Right. Yeah. And yeah. so that's weird. Uh, it doesn't Very. fit in the trilogy in that regard either, which is just like it kind of lacks that it thing that worked with right. uh, Bowie and Eno. But I don't know. I don't think any of this album is like memorable, really. No. I, I, I frequently listen to all three of these together, and I always like kind of regret listening to Lodger at the end. <laughs> and I feel like I should just stop. Well, but they go together in, in I, my head. So. I listened. I listened to. Um, I listened to the three albums today, and. Uh, I started Lodger and I got like three songs in. I was like, I remember I don't like this. I'm done. Yeah, yeah, that's how I feel every time I I get like almost through the first side and I'm like, yeah, no, I'm good. Yeah, uh, exactly. so I think I think this brings up an important point, like a talking point would be, um, do we did we give this album a chance because it's David Bowie? So what I want to pose is, if a local band that we know recorded this album at the same, you know, basically did the same thing but in a 2020 version, would we? listen to the whole thing and give it the attention of listening through or would we skim through it and go fuck this album dude i i bet i bet any any amount of money that if a, a, a local band no matter the scene no matter the city if a local band in 2020 recorded this album it'd be a fucking indie hit i i i bet i bet this would be an i'm not saying i would like it i'm just saying that i bet this would be an indie hit if a small local band recorded this I think if Talking Heads did this album, it would be a thing that people remember. Yeah, man, that is, is such a good point. I cannot agree with you more. 
the song DJ was directly like David Bowie wrote that song to be like, I want to write a talking head song. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I don't know, yeah. man. It's, it, oh, the song, Hagen, I was saying that the drums on this, uh, the, the song Look Back in Anger, those drums are really cool. But okay. it's like, I'll it's to... really cool in a sense that it's like, oh, I like the way those drums sound. Sounds kind of complicated. I'll have to go back and listen to that one because, like I said, I didn't, I, I you know, I, I didn't go back and finish this album today. Uh, I, I got I got like four songs down, and I was like, I, I'm I just I just can't like I'm I, I'm just so I'm so tired, you know. Like, well, that I, I'll second what Dave said, Hagen. That is one of the two tracks on this album that I actually liked. So okay. it, it's worth a second listen. Um, yeah, I'll check it can out. Can I end this with a, a question for Adam only? Mm-hmm. All right, Adam. This is a serious question. Which repetition is better? David Bowie's or your good friend's moniker? I'm going to go with y'all because you're here. <laughs> Woo! Oh, you took too long to answer that and then gave such a safe answer. No, I no, like I'm cutting out all the silence. Don't no, worry. No, keep the silence. It's so good. <laughs> um, you guys ready for your last question? Let's do it. Okay, so again, David, you probably that was the, the last question. Is this still about heroes? It's still about heroes. Yeah, still about heroes. Okay, uh, so... Um, Tony Visconti used a very particular technique to to mic David Bowie's vocals. Uh, I'm going to ask one question, and if you get the first part right, then I'll give you the bonus question. So, how many microphones did Tony Visconti use to mic David Bowie's vocals? One, two, five. three, or four? Did, I know okay. the answer. Fuck you, Jackson. <laughs> it's not five. I, I, I five wasn't an option. I said one, no, two, three, and four. No, what did, what are the options? I didn't hear it because Jackson. One, two, and three. One, two, three, and four. What do you think, album? I'm gonna say four. Dave? I don't know why. The answer is three. It's Great. five. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he used so a clo- he used, go ahead. No, no. So yeah, go ahead. Take, explain explain the miking technique because it's very cool. He used a close mic to get like that. Uh, wasn't noise gated at all noise a noise gate for people who don't do recording and stuff is like when you stop speaking it it stops recording basically it cuts out the sound so that you don't get a lot of the room noise and then he used a they were in a long room so he used a mic that was like 10 feet away to get some of the reverb from that mic and then a mic that was 20 or 25 feet away to get more of the reverb from that one but those both of those mics were set with a a noise gate where if he was yelling at the top of his lungs, they would they would get uh, they would start recording. So he would get a lot of natural sound from those mics. It's really cool. Is yeah, that, so, that's basically it, right? Yeah. So more or less, the idea is is, is exactly what you said. But the, the the thing is, he really wanted the room sound. He wanted to have that room sound with the vocals. But he only had one track left, so he only had room for one more track. So he couldn't go in and do three separate three separate mics. Uh, like three separate tracks for this. So he had to use three mics onto one track in the recording. And uh, yeah, the gate, the gate was, it was set. So um, one was 20 feet away. One was 50 feet away. And so if he got loud, which he does in the later verses, right? You were talking about how um, in some, in some, when they isolated the vocals in those later verses, it didn't sound too hot. Um, But in, in context, it sounds amazing, right? Oh my God. So, so in those later verses, when he gets very loud, he gets into like the higher register. Uh, that's when the room mics start to open, 
which is a crazy concept to think about, you know, in, in, in 76, when they record, they recorded this in 76, right? Uh, yeah. So when they recorded this, you know, they, they have these microphones that are set up. It's an electronic gate. It's not how we use a noise gate now. It's like an actual electronic gate on the microphone versus like you can set it in. Now you can set it in like Pro Tools and say like, I'm, I, I'm putting a noise gate on this. Um, yeah. But so they had it set up with specific thresholds. So when he got loud enough, the mic would open and it would record, which is just crazy. Yeah. That's just wild. It's so it's so like it's that kind of invention. Like, uh, I kind of wish we were still dealing with that because in some ways that's more convenient and more natural. Well, I mean, and yeah, I would say, but also I think that if you know the the, the technology advancements allow us to do that technique, but better. I think this technique is awesome, and I think that you know we, we can find cheats for this technique. But I think that if 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 this technique was repeated now, like now, if Tony Visconti was like, I want to do this again, I think it would sound better. With depending on the person, obviously. Of course. Um. So I I yeah I I loved that. That's like that was like my favorite part of that whole video um about the song because it wasn't Tony Visconti just like jerking himself off. <laughs> That's so true. It was. I, it was, I, yeah, I was gonna say he does that in every interview. Man, it's, it sucks because yeah. he's such a good producer. Clearly, I mean, he's such a good producer. Um, but man, I, I most of the most of the video, I was like, God, just stop, stop talking. I'm done with you. Yeah. I did. Also, uh, maybe we should link that video because it's really funny to see his uh, him trying to interact with his assistant. Oh where yeah. He's, like Whatever. she's playing the tracks while he's talking about them. And he keeps giving her these death stares. That's like, okay, shut, like, turn the track off. Okay, stop. But he's stop. just not yeah. telling her. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very funny. It's it's uh it's definitely it's definitely awkward. And he just he he introduces her at the beginning, like, this is my assistant who's going to be helping us out. And then as soon as he's like, uh, now what's the next thing I can talk about? Oh yeah, the bass. Stop. Okay, so the bass, <laughs> like, it's very unnecessarily aggressive. Yeah, he's reacting to her as if she's reading his mind and not doing it correctly. <laughs> So, so can we do like a, a, a what we all think of the Berlin trilogy as a whole? Jackson, go first. Uh, I really think that you know you can skip the last album. Heroes is amazing. Heroes, the song is the best out of all of these three albums. But I really do think that the album Heroes and Low could have benefited from being, and especially because they came out the same year, they, that could have been just a double album. And you could rework the uh, sequencing to maybe have it really work really well that the songs that we kind of felt meh about on low really kind of serve as a uh, counterpoint to these other songs and heroes. I think, you know, obviously, if you're only going to listen to one album, it's got to be heroes. I agree. So I'm going to so what here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a Spotify playlist for that. I'll make it public and I'll send it to Adam to put in the show notes. So everybody at home can try uh, listening to it. Well, I'll just put the A sides together and the B sides together. Cause I think that sounds really mm. fun. That sounds like a really fun way to listen to this album to, to those two albums. Uh, as I've said already, Lodger sucks. I'm, I don't, I don't want to listen to that album. I really no. like, I, I, again, heroes is great. And, and I, I, you know, listening to Low again today, I remembered how much I liked it, but it just, it just didn't pull me in as much as Heroes did the entire way through. Oh, and to, it's really important to note also, so the the charting in Germany, right? Lodger did not chart at all. No, no chart position <laughs> I mean, that, for Lodger. That makes sense, though. Yeah, I, I guess uh, what we should say about Low is that um, Heroes is just at face value great. 
I think low, you have to work a little bit harder as a listener to yeah, appreciate what's going on. I agree. Yeah, I think low and heroes both go together in that heroes is what they were trying to do with low. Not that low is bad, but it's it's not what they tried to get to at the same level. Right. But listening to heroes after that is like, oh, I get it. Like, this is it. And right, then don't, yeah. don't bother with Watcher unless you're a completionist, which is the only reason I have the album as, as a record, really. It Do you have every David Bowie it. record? No, not yet. But whenever they reissue stuff, they're reissuing, um, I forget which one this year. They're reissuing stuff every like 50th anniversary, more or less. Mm, okay. And I'm That's getting crazy. all those eventually. That's so but crazy. I, I'm not I, in a rush to, you know, pick up, you know, the disco era stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think that for me personally, uh, I'm very aware of the fact that we're talking about records that came out a long time ago and trying to keep in context what was going on at that time when David Bowie wrote those records. Uh, Even closer to the records themselves, Low was an experiment and Heroes was the the actual, uh, like, the better execution of said experiment. So for me, what I would do is listen to Fuck Low or fuck um, uh, the last one. I can't Lodger. remember the name of it. But what I would do is make a playlist of the songs that I actually liked, and they're all going to come from the A-sides. Yeah, I think the A-sides of Low and Heroes are both like a perfect album of that era of Bowie. Yeah, And I enjoy the instrumental stuff, so like I would include that too. But if you don't want to listen to that, then... So, Adam, you listened to Iggy Pop's album that came out before this, right? Yeah. Okay, so would you say the trilogy would be better if there was no Lodger and instead the first part was oh, yeah. Pops? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We listened to that for our deep dive, and it, it's a fucking great album. So that's that's the New Berlin trilogy. We're calling it right here. That's it. Fuck Lodger. <laughs> you it wasn't, heard it, it was here, recorded. Folks. Part of it was recorded in New York. It wasn't even recorded in Berlin. So yeah, that's all, it. All, all you historians who are listening to this podcast as we have reclaimed the Berlin trilogy today, on this fateful day in uh, Sweet 2020, um, I just want you to also add in whatever uh, you know footnotes you have that Jackson told you to. <laughs> okay. I want that for the historians. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we get right on that. Well, oh, I kind of wish that was the end of the episode. Does any does, does anybody have does anybody have anything else they want to add well, about this? I was just going to say the idiot makes more sense as part of the trilogy because it was recorded in Berlin. So oh, so I mean it's it's already just yeah, it's just better. It's just better. Just that's it. Look uh, at us rewriting history. Yeah, we are nailing it. Yeah, four um, white guys rewriting history. That'll end up well. <laughs> it's unheard of. <laughs> Those are not maniacal laughs for our listeners, by the way. We're not like. <laughs> that's yeah. No, speak that's, for yourself, oh, Dave. No, 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 since you have to point that out. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, I super unfortunately listened to Lodger and the rest of the Berlin trilogy, and I hope that the rest of you at home give it a shot. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, you found us, so you know where to continue to find us. So if there's a subscribe button, hit but, that. Yeah, tell your friends about Tell your friends, the show, yeah. If you liked it. You can follow us on Instagram, uh, DFTA Podcast. Is that right? Is that the Instagram? Probably. <laughs> and then I guess that's the same Twitter. I don't know. You can find us <laughs> on, uh, on uh, every, most things that don't be the artist. Facebook. Hit, hit, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we're not using Twitter until we have a new president. So everybody go okay, make sure yeah, you're registered that's to it. vote. You can find us Ooh. on TikTok. Um, 
at DFTA pod. Uh, let's see if somebody searches for us. <laughs> um, well, all right. So uh, go ahead. <laughs> Jackson's awesome. upset. Jackson's so upset. We, we almost made it. Jackson's so upset. What do you got, man? I was going to end the episode. I was going to end the episode. You can go he fuck was in yourself. the middle of ending the I'm episode. I'm literally ending the episode. Do you have a specific okay. thing? Because I have a specific thing as well. Okay, I'll let you actually end it. But I just want to uh, end my episode with, uh, <laughs> please don't tell David Bowie what I said about Lodger. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, don't let David Bowie know anything we said. Uh, yeah, sure okay, that, yeah. That, that'll happen. That'll exactly. So again, thank you for listening. Uh, and if you're still here, uh, fuck off. And Give me a dial. Perfect. I'm done with this. It's this is canceled. <laughs>